Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This show is brought to you by Lumet. Look, if you need a loan for a multifamily, senior housing, student housing, check out Lumet.com. You'll be glad you did. All right. Well, today we're going to talk about our 2024 forecast. And we have one of my favorite guests here today. It's KC Conway. He's the founder of KC Nomics, and he is here in Studio One. KC, good hey, to see you. Great to see you. Happy, I, happy. I love the new branding. So I just got to get used to it, right? Uh, now that red shoe's out the door. Yeah. yeah. It used to flow right off your feet, right? Now it's got to flow off your tongue. That's right. That's right. Well, let's get into, uh, you know, I think one of the things that folks really like about this show, you know, is this is not kind of one sided one view. You know, this is different folks view and, and Casey has a big background as an economist and and and, and worked at the Fed and, and been economist at, at for CCIM and, and speaks all around the country. And I, I love your view and of, of what's going on and what to expect moving forward. And one of the things that uh, I guess is almost upsetting to me if, if I could say it that way is, you know, it seems like the Fed's um, main mi mission, as I understand it, is the soundness of banks and then to fight inflation. And then, you know, that rapid increase in interest rates seemed like it kind of really could doom banks and, and, and wasn't to, to move it that fast seems crazy. But but then it kind of begs the question of, you know, hey, why are they shooting for a two percent inflation rate after you know shutting down the, the you know shutting down the economy, shutting down logistics, uh, sending us all home? Uh, we have nothing to do with spend money, and then stimulus for the company, stimulus for the employees, and and not and then not expect inflation. But where does this two percent uh, target come from? <laughs> Well, I'm uh, famous for my term barbecue sauce, right? It's yeah. the flight way of calling BS on it. So, um, you know, I was getting a lot of those questions. And so, you know, I reminded people that during the Volcker era, his target was 4%. And there actually was some logic behind it. Volcker found that consumer behavior start, you know, started to really change around 4% inflation. So that's why he targeted the 4%. But where did this 2% come from? Well, came from New Zealand. <laughs> the New Zealand Central Bank back in 1988 said, you know, we ought to put a number around what our target is. And so they just sat around talking and drinking and having a good time and they came up with 2%. There's no research behind it. There's no paper why 2%. And so fast forward from 1988 to 2012 and Chairman Bernanke says, yeah, I like that number. Let's take it too. So we have this target that there's no Fed research papers around, there's no fundamental basis, and they're just saying, that's where we're gonna shoot for, and we don't care if we blow up the whole economy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not one person on, you know, Bloomberg or CNBC or, you know, at the Fed press conferences, ever raised their hand and said, where's this 2% come from, why 2%? They get them kicked out if they ask that question, but it's it's made up. <laughs> All right, so you hear it here for the first time. That's right, you right. got the, you got the scoop. <laughs> <laughs> right here. Well, you, you bring up you know the the banks here and, and the impact on the banks, and as we talk about twenty twenty four, we we got to look at the banks and, and what do we expect moving forward? Because it really impacts the economy and and commercial real estate. What do you see for banks moving forward? So I'm really concerned, and I've, mm -hmm. I've been concerned before Silicon Valley Bank. So on March 8th, before Silicon Valley Bank blew up, I was actually in Dallas briefing the bank regulators. And my thesis was, 
Have you all stopped to think about what the repricing of commercial real estate will do to banks' balance sheets after 10 interest rate hikes? That you didn't stop. And they all looked at me like I was from Mars. And I'm like, well, maybe. I'm Irish. I'm green. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I said, y'all need to think about it. And they all, they all dismissed it the next day. Silicon Valley Bank fails. Mm -hmm. And so then they begin to focus on the liabilities and the assets. So the liabilities are your deposits and the assets are what you invest in. Mm -hmm. And so Silicon Valley did a lot on treasuries. Um, at the encouragement of the Fed, by the way, because uh, they said you're a high-risk venture capital lending bank, so you should invest in something really secure like treasuries. So they did. <laughs> but the problem is we've had a model for over a half century where banks would basically give you one penny for your deposit, and then they'd go lend it for, and everybody was happy, and the bankers would take you and play golf in the summer and the fall and you know send you nice goodie bags and whatnot, and it worked. Well, now with the Fed rate hikes, you, banks got to pay five, six, seven percent for deposits, and their loans are only paying four percent. So that what they call net interest margin is upside down. So the banks don't have profitability; they're under huge stress. And the Fed hasn't figured out or connected the dot. Okay, what are we going to do after raising all these interest rates uh, to the point that banks can't raise deposits or afford to do it? And how are they going to have the capital to lend? So this really isn't the bank's problem. You know, I mean, they didn't cause this, but it's something they're going to have to live with. And I don't see that changing. And so if the Fed leaves these rates elevated, the only way the banks can really stay liquid is they're going to have to sell loan portfolios. They're not going to be able to do lending. So they'll bundle up a bunch of their loans, take the Federal Home Loan Bank board, or they'll take them to the discount window and say, here's $100 million worth of loans. Give me $100 million. They say, okay, here's $100 million. Banker goes, great. We can have Christmas. We can buy turkey, right? We can go do all that. It's a wonderful life. <clears throat> well, 12 months from now, they got to come back and buy those loans back. And where are banks going to be to be able to buy those loans back if they don't have a profitability margin? And so that's the problem we're discovering when we go in the banks and we have a loan maturing and we've been a good customer and we paid as agreed. And they say, sorry, we're not, we're not renewing. Get out of here. Or anything new, we can't lend. We don't have the money. And that's the biggest problem that we've got to understand. And that ripple affects into the securitization market because if we don't have a healthy permanent market, the banks can't offload those maturing construction loans that are stabilized into a permanent market to reliquify re their balance sheet. So I'm real worried about the banks next year. And have some of the banks been told they can't loan on real estate? Yeah, so basically the Fed, what the bank has said to the, or the Fed has said to the banks, lending is economic activity. Economic, economic activity is inflationary, quit lending. <laughs> so they're being very, very punitive in kind of their supervisory role. Um, we're already got, we've all breached all the CRE concentration levels are all over that. Um, they're making them go get appraisals. So any loan that comes due and it's a maturity risk and they can't refinance it, gotta go get a new appraisal. They gotta look at calling it an impaired loan. And so that's what we're seeing right now is all these maturity defaults. That, loans in real estate that was performing very well yeah. before these rate increases. No no bad, no sins. And now they can't go from a five cap rate environment to an eight cap rate environment without 25 to 30% of the value being gone. Yeah. And then they got to go get an appraisal. God help us there. <laughs> and what do you see for delinquency now? And what do you expect moving forward into 2024? So delinquency is just in the last quarter up over 30%. Mm -hmm. That's a big increase. This is worse than what we saw, you know, going into the 2008, 9, 10 period. It's worse than we saw the first year of COVID. So this is one of those watershed events in terms of the delinquency. And we're only in the first or second inning, you know. Um, probably what the Braves thought they were doing in the in the first round of the playoffs instead of you, you win all these games all year long and then you get to the first round and they do the typical Atlanta thing. But um, so we're early in it. It's a steep rise. It's maturity delinquencies, maturity defaults now. But as we get through it, we're seeing deeper stresses like 
certain expense items like mm-hmm. property insurance. So if you're just thinking that your property insurance is going to go up three, four, five percent a year, try adding a zero to that, fifty yeah. percent or more if you're in a coastal market. So when you start seeing the stresses on these expense items that are growing way, way faster than your revenue, that gets us deeper into the underwriting down the road. Yeah. I mean, that steep, fast rise in interest rates, you know, uh, eventually the cap rates it go up and it doesn't take much of a, of a cap mm-hmm. rate change to really uh, reduce values. Right. So yeah. it's kind of amazing that they went that fast to me. It's, it's, a- it's unprecedented. So, you know, here you had a central bank that thought the way they fight inflation was with a demand inflation tool. So raising interest rates is a demand inflation driven tool. You're, you're selling, you have too many people buying homes, you have too many people buying cars and you need to slow that demand down. We had a supply shortage. Well, the way you deal with supply inflation is you lend into it, you create more capacity so the prices go down. Mm-hmm. And the Fed could have done that by leaving rates low and go to their balance sheet and sell their balance sheet off to reduce the money supply and kept the money supply shrinking while keeping the interest rates down. But this Fed doesn't understand the two pieces. This is, I, I, I call it jump rope monetary policy. They're out there just skipping jump rope, not knowing whether to hike or skip or hike or skip. And, um, and remember for, um, for Jay Powell, his mentor was Paul Volcker. That ought to scare all of us. Mm. So what do you expect for interest rates in 2024? What would be your guess there? So the Fed's hoping that they know they've overdone it. They should have paused. They should have gone a little more gradual. They didn't do that. So they're kind of celebrating that, okay, we just saw CPI come down, barbecue sauce. <laughs> if you're buying a house, if you're doing grocery shopping, if you're buying electricity, any of these items, you know those items are running 6 to 10% in inflation. And so part of the way they get the CPI to look like it's coming down is they're changing the weighting of items. So like housing used to be 40% of CPI. They've just cut that way back. So it makes it look like they cut inflation, but they just changed the weighting. So there's a lot of gamesmanship going on in these government numbers. So I don't think the inflation thing is solved. I think we're going to see huge surprises on the inflation side coming into the first part of the year. Energy in particular concerns me. We now have you know, the rest of the, rest of the world wanting to do oil cuts. Um, so although we've gone from $80, $90 a barrel down to under 70, that can quickly reverse um, you know, here in the first part of the year. We need to remember our history lessons like 1973. We got on the wrong side of the Arabs in 1973 supporting Israel. Gosh, seems like we're doing that again. And they're cutting, they're cutting production. And we're at a time where we've just depleted our strategic petroleum reserve. So if you ever wanted to do an oil embargo, right? This might be the time where our reserves are depleted. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've you know cut down on our, our energy production and um, and and now they can shoot that into it. So I think energy inflation is one to really watch. Just like last year, we saw the first half of the year, two quarters of negative GDP. Then remember it suddenly went positive. That's because we released the oil from the reserves and we brought energy prices down and looked like we solved inflation. There's a lot of wild cards out there. So my thing is the Fed's going to probably stay on hold here in December. They're not in the mood to cut. They're they're too afraid that there are under, under seas and uh, underlayment of inflation still out there. So I think you can't even think in the first half of next year about cuts. So it's higher for longer. And when you look at the volume of real estate that we have has to refinance and you look at the maturing construction loans that got to get out of the banks and find a permanent market, it's not there. Yeah. So you expect interest rates kind of stay steady into next year and, and delinquency on loans you expect to stay steady or increase? It's going to increase a lot. Okay. So we've just gone from the maturities. Now we're going to get into ones that really you know, come into defaults where they get the new property insurance bill and that eats up, you know, all the rest of the NOI or property taxes, which have been going up quite a bit, um, keep going up. So the expense side 
on the real estate is growing, you know, double digits from high teens into the 30, mm -hmm. and the rent numbers are only growing two to 4%. Mm -hmm. So that creates a big imbalance. So um, in, in certain property types like office are under a lot more stress, but it's across the board we're even seeing industrial deals that are seeing stress. Yeah, and insurance costs have really been, been rising. And uh, what do you think the impact there is on uh, the different geographies and different areas of properties and, and migration and where people want to buy and, and where they want to live. Yeah. So um, it's really bad in the coastal markets. You go down to Florida, you know, everybody's moving to Florida. Well, they're getting ready to all leave Florida. <laughs> um, so one of my favorite new indicators is pods, you know, the shipping containers. Mm -hmm. So they have a monthly report and they show where all those pod containers are going. And so for most of last this last year, most more pods have been moving to Florida than anywhere else. The top six of the top 12 markets were Florida. Well, in the last month, the data is showing that more pods are leaving Florida than any other state because people are leaving because of the property insurance and the housing cost issues. So they're moving into Georgia, Tennessee, the Carolinas. Um, they're moving inland to get away from the property insurance because in Florida right now, most people are experiencing that their property insurance bill is more than their mortgage. Mm -hmm. And so they just can't sustain that. Yeah, I had a townhome uh, in Destin, and I think it had four different policies. Uh, <laughs> like, you got one for flood. You got to have one wind. for fire. You got to yeah. have one for wind. You got to have one for liability. And it's like, I ended up just selling it. I'm like, man, this is just crazy uh, amount of insurance. Um, and you, uh, as, as you talk about the market moving forward, you know, there's uh, – a lot of challenges for a lot of folks, but sometimes changing markets also mean opportunities, mm -hmm. right? Where are there opportunities for folks moving forward in 2024? So I've been a proponent for quite a while. I look at the secondary and tertiary markets. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at a Huntsville, Alabama, or you go, uh, you know, up into even in the Carolinas, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, or a Greenville mm -hmm. um, that have good growth fundamentals. You got good manufacturing. You got our supply chain is remaking really to a more north south from the Great Lakes down to our ports in the Gulf and the southeast. You got great interstate infrastructure. We have affordable workforce. Um, we have relatively affordable housing. I know when you're in your local market and you see it go up. Um, but, you know, when you still buy a $300,000 home and, you know, in, in Huntsville or Columbia, South Carolina, or, you know, get into other parts of the Southeast uh, over Alabama, it's just down in Mississippi. And think of the average was like 175,000. Mm -hmm. And so companies that are relocating or reshoring manufacturing, you look at, you know, Ford's big blue oval city in, in Memphis, you look at Toyota with their big new EV plant that they're going into the uh, Greensboro uh, area up there. You look along the 85 corridor, um, SK Batteries, Hyundai, all the way down to Mobile, Alabama. It's another one. Um, and you look at, you know, they got the inland port in, so Hyundai rewarded them with a second plant and they're doubling the Kia plant on the Georgia side. So we've got all those elements. We got logistics infrastructure, we got workforce, we got great universities. You know, if you're here in Georgia, your kids come out with no student loan debt pretty much because we use lottery money to pay for education in your in your college degree. Um, so we got all those pieces that are working for us. So I really love the secondary and tertiary markets. My craziest one is Wichita, Kansas. So Wichita, Kansas was a place where Bombardier aircraft out of Canada two years ago announced they're moving into Wichita. And everybody wondered why. So I had to help explain it. So I said, well, that's where we made all the aircraft in World War II. So all the infrastructure was there. There's a little company known as Boeing. Mm -hmm. They make all their fuselages that go to Seattle and Charleston right there. Mm -hmm. And then they had these two guys that really wanted to be in the soft drink business, but they failed. So they just became 
filthy, wealthy billionaires, the Koch brothers. <laughs> That's where they're from. And they endowed Wichita State University to probably be the top aeronautical engineering school in North America. So you got all this stuff there in affordability. And so it attracted Bombardier and now it's attracting in all these tech companies that need aeronautical engineering or engineering. So there's a crazy one. Another one, Little Rock, Arkansas, right? What the hell's Little Rock, Arkansas? Well, everything that's being crowded out of Memphis because of Ford's Blue Oval City, it's moving across the river. They've got an inland port. Newcore Steel's building their newest modern steel plant there. Tractor Supply decided to make that their e-commerce. They can move everything down the Arkansas River, down to the Port of Mobile, out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So these secondary markets, um, you know, like you know Montgomery, you know, even if you go out west at Tucson, Arizona, Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, you know, there's a lot of good markets in the, in the Midwest is back. They're outperforming even the South on all residential metrics. Uh, most increase in absorption, occupancy in multifamily are in Midwest markets. Let's talk about multifamily and other sectors. As far as looking at opportunities, you know, moving forward in 2024, what sectors do you like? So industrial stays strong, but we have to be careful about industrial. The tenants are saying they want to hedge their risk. They don't want another half million square foot building. So they're even, they're going from biggie size it to shrinky size it. So <laughs> Prologis will echo this if you read the earnings. It's shorter term, five-year leases, smaller buildings, 100 to 300,000 square foot buildings. Um, so the, the smaller 100 to 300,000 square foot industrial building, well-located, but they can be expanded. They can add another you know, 100,000 square feet to it on the end, or is in an industrial park where they can still grow. That is just hotter than anything. The big stuff is really, is really slow on the market. Um, so industrial stay healthy. I know CBRE comes out every once in a while and wants to talk about how terrible industrial is that the vacancy rate increased like 20% from 4.1 to 4.8%. <laughs> and I just kind of, I kind of chuckle. And it's because they sold everybody so many office buildings, they got to make industrial look bad. So they, they can kind of cover up their mistakes in office. Um, but Prologis just came out with their latest report. And they said, look, if, if you're a tenant and you're not renewing now or looking at an early renewal, you're going to be squeezed out of the market or you're going to be looking at 20 plus percent rent increases. And when you look at their earnings, you look at a REIT like ILPT or you look at Prologis, they're all basically at 98, 99 percent occupancy and 20 percent rent increases. So I'm real, real bullish on the industrial and really along the supply chain. You know, it's, it's got to be where you understand how you're port hip bone is connected to your rail leg bone, to your to your foot interstate bone. Yeah. And you get those three connected and know where your goods are coming in from, in, from your city. Multifamily will be fine. Everybody's mm -hmm. forecasting the complete implosion. Uh, the, remember, we always have the GSEs. They're always this anomaly you know, finance program. The Fed puts a lot of it on its balance sheet. So if anything starts to go wrong with housing and we can't build homes, the government's gonna intercede and keep multifamily healthy. They cannot afford to have it go down. So um, the rates will be different. We got a lot of room. You've got, you know, five, six percent, you know, max vacancy rates. You've had decent rent growth. It's the expense side. And when I say to people on multifamily, your most important player is your property management team. They're the ones that can figure out where they can find efficiencies, put in more low flow water toilets or renegotiate a trash contract, you know, instead of picking up, you know, four times a week, can you get by with three? And all those little things to help offset that property insurance. So hug your property manager, make sure you don't forget to give them a good Christmas gift because in multifamily, that's your hero. So I think multifamily will be okay, industrial will be okay, retail, it's all about services today, mm -hmm. or it's grocery. So anything with a grocery store, if you can't find a loan or help on a grocery, call Michael or me, we'll, we'll line you up with eight more. Anything grocery is doing very well. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite kind of eclectic, kind of big box retailer is um, 
this tractor supply. Mm -hmm. And so they're in secondary, they go all over, they got 2,300 stores, they wanna add 300 more, they have no debt. Uh, they go into 15 to 30,000 square feet so they can take half of a big box. Uh, they're getting into the pet supply, home improvement. They are a great retailer. They, they love secondary and tertiary markets. They love the suburbs. So if you got a big box that's been sitting around and you can carve it in half, contact Tractor Supply. They're probably looking for a spot. I was in a Tractor Supply about a month ago and I'm standing at the cash register checking out and I see these two girls come in and duck to get in the door and they're both on horses. So they, they rode their horses in into the store and were walking around, just rode their horses around the fact, tractor supply. Of a, she said, don't charge us for bags. I got my saddlebags. <laughs> That's right. Like, don't walk behind these horses. Be careful. Swoop. <laughs> Be careful for more than one, uh, one, more than one reason. Yeah. So what about some of the other sectors? What about like self-storage and I'm, I'm real worried on self-storage. We've been in an overbuild cycle. The REITs thought, oh my God, excess excess profits breed ruinous REIT competition. So they've been building a ton the last two, three years. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing a number of cases right now where we've seen you know 25 to 40% growth in the supply in a market. Um, so I'm doing one up in the, in the Pennsylvania market right now. And Philadelphia is ranked as one of the you know one, two or three worst markets in the country for overbuilding, rent contraction, Sessions coming in, so um, the the self storage um, is is basically it's an overbuilding issue, and then when you layer in the financing, and you got to have all the bells and whistles today. You can't just be the old 1980s, you know, thing looks like someone's garage with an orange door on it, you know, and a chain link fence anybody can hop over. It's got to be more modern type stuff, have some element of climate control, a lot of security. So I'm worried about that. What I really like that's um, out there is manufactured housing. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the best affordable housing options. I serve, full disclosure, I serve on the board of directors for a manufactured housing REIT, UMH. Mm -hmm. And our biggest problem is NIMBY. They won't let us build a new one because they think that wherever you build a manufactured home community, that's where tornadoes and crime go. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, I can show you tornadoes and crime in a lot of other places, <laughs> yeah. but the numbers are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, we need to build probably one to two million units a year and we can't even get 500,000 built or 200,000. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers you can still, with your lot, and your new manufactured home, you can be all in, you know, at like 150 to 175. Mm -hmm. And Fannie Mae is starting, we already just got a line of credit to put the manufactured homes on financing with um, Fannie and Freddie. So we're bringing that financing. And you're all in, whether you rent or you um, own, you can still be in around 1000 to $1,200 a month wow. for a 1,400 square foot modern home that gets 30 as utility costs are 30% what they are in an apartment. It's a pretty yeah. good deal. Well, that, that's maybe one of the answers to affordable housing, yeah. right? What about uh, build for rent subdivisions? What do you think about that moving forward? So it was a great idea. Um, they got too aggressive and started paying too much for land. So they were mm -hmm. paying, you know, our old rule would be, you know, you, could, you couldn't pay more than about 30% of the end home price for the lots. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at what they were buying and building into, they were getting into 40 to 50%. So their land mm -hmm. basis is, is upside down. Mm -hmm. And then when they look at the cost to build, they're pushing that point where that rent and the build for rent is what a mortgage is today. Mm -hmm. So um, some of them like American Homes for Rent had some challenges there. Uh, it's a good concept, but the numbers aren't like they were with higher mortgage rates. They gotta deal with the same things that you and I do. Where are they gonna get the construction loan to build those homes? What's the rate gonna be? And if they're all in at a seven or 8% kind of mortgage or so for five and a half percent plus 250, your construction loans, eight, 9%. It's hard to make that work. So yeah. great concept. I like it. Um, but um, it's got the same finance challenges as new construction. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about senior housing. It seems like some of the senior housing is, is doing really well, but we're starting to see some delinquencies and some uh, defaults there. What's your thoughts on senior? So we're all getting older like me. I'm 61 now. You know, I kind of I kind of check out. I think they marketed senior housing to the wrong demographic because when I when my kids were, were younger, um, I, I would have I could have been marketed senior housing to have carpool service, van service, doctor service, uh, pick up from school service, uh, white tablecloth dinners and meals. Served. I mean, I was I would have been all in, you know, mm -hmm. we could have put a playground out there. So the the demographics are still in our favor the costs are a challenge. So we're seeing more adaptive reuse of senior facilities. So we'll take these closed uh, corporate headquarters, office building headquarters, and they've got their own cafeteria and campus and big campuses. They're able to do more of the independent and assisted. They can't quite do the skilled nursing. Um, so they can get their costs down 40 to 50% versus new construction. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is, again, the financing. I mean, the, the numbers and the revenues and what they had working the last five to 10 years were very good. But now when you basically double your debt costs, that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. But fundamentals are very good for senior housing. Yeah. Well, let's talk about office. Uh, that's probably the sector and most question in most people's mind and, and about, uh, you know, demand and, and, and what happens moving forward. What are your thoughts moving forward to 2024 for office? So the saying I came up with about a year, year and a half ago was that uh, remote work will be to office building values what e-commerce became to big box and malls. And we're in the really the early stages of that. And we're seeing it's not just isolated to San Francisco and New York. We've seen it here in Atlanta, the iconic um, uh, tower place. And uh, even on our suburban market here, and we call it Pill Hill, or I don't know, I, th I think they just call it Jigsaw Puzzle with the road construction. It was different again today, mm -hmm. how I got off. Um, but even that stuff, and the bottom line is when you have companies that say, well, maybe we'll keep some space, but we're mm -hmm. not gonna do 20 or 30,000 square feet. We're going, we're going down to 10. So we'll stay in the building, but when we take 10,000 square feet, what do you do with that other vacancy? So now you're seeing to underwrite office building deals. Today, most banks, anybody that's doing it, is saying we're gonna factor in a 25 or 30% vacancy rate. Yeah. Numbers just don't work. So it's worse in the urban markets because nobody wants to commute. Nobody wants to go down. You got crime issues. We got mayors in these big cities like you know Chicago and uh, you know San Francisco that aren't enforcing crime. So nobody wants to go back to the downtown area. Um, and then you've got um, where are the services. So, you know, I, I travel a lot. So I've told all my New York friends, I won't go visit you in New York anymore because uh, as a visitor, I can't go into their office space. The employees can go back, but a lot of them won't let visitors or vendors come into the office space. So they say, well, let's go meet at a restaurant. So well, we why is that? Well, I'll tell you in. They, they think they, we haven't gone through all their HR screenings and had our tests and uh, okay. all that stuff. So they think we're, we're a germ factory coming <laughs> off the airplane. Yeah. So it's, it's, really a, it's really a challenge. And then if you do find one that's open, there's two servers and there's like 400 people waiting to eat. So you can't get service. So I said, come my way and we'll open up the restaurant. So, um, so again, if you look at those services, what we used to think about with restaurants and your dry cleaner and all the things that you need, we can go into the office, you get service, your car detail, you get everything done during the day that now we got to go do on Saturday in the suburbs, you know, use half yeah. a day. So all of that is broken down. And the cost is high to pay to park the car, pay to buy lunch, dry cleaning. I take all those costs out because I can do remote work in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I've just picked up five to $750 a month. Mm -hmm. So for that, that middle tier or that, you know, lower tier office workforce, that's a big deal. And they're not, yeah. they're not coming back. Yeah. So the suburban office market I see is very strong. I get calls every month for someone looking for a nice five to 7,000 square foot space. And their favorite one is a closed branch bank. 
There's mm-hmm. closed branch banks near everybody's you know neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So you go to the FDIC and you see the thousands that are closed there and you dump that database into the map system with the employees where they work and you find three branch banks that are close to all your workforce and you lease or buy those at 50 bucks a square foot, put them in on a lease and you got a hundred dollar square foot asset. Yeah. And everything's there. You can be back with your kids, you can do soccer, you can do little league, you can do basketball. Uh, you can go out and eat, all your restaurants are there, your dry cleaners there. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think the this is the time that we've been waiting for in the suburbs. Yeah. And to be afraid to just broad brush um, office is bad. It's the urban markets and the big, the bigger city urban, and it's not so much the uh, the suburban. And again, when you think about these markets, it's not not what we think. But you look at Atlanta, Miami, um, you know, even Nashville. We've we've got all these urban buildings that are hitting the wall. Yeah, I was interested you say that because we're seeing a lot of users that are buying um, smaller buildings. You know, thirty to mm-hmm. five thousand square foot buildings around, and, and getting pretty good deals and properties that maybe weren't available in the past, right? Yeah. And of course, banks love owner occupants. There's yeah. loans for the for you. Yep. So if you think there's no loans for office, if you're an owner occupant, there's loans. That's right. And uh, they love you. Well, what would you leave our audience with, KC, to think about for 2024? So one of my one of my favorite quotes I found um, across the year. I'll probably have it at the end of the year. So I'm gonna instead of doing a naughty and nice elves edition, we're gonna retire that one, and we're gonna do our first annual barbecue sauce awards. So what were the really bad barbecue sauce mm-hmm. decision statements? So we'll, we'll have that at the end of the year. But this is a quote I found. It was uh, Seeking Alpha is one of my cliff notes for tracking earnings or whatnot. And it, they, they get it right more than they don't. But this was a quote that we all need to think about. And I keep sending it on an on a index card, and a Christmas card and holiday card to the Fed. <laughs> Accepting that many correlations that have traditionally provided insight may no longer be functional is essential to navigating today's market. So for example, the Fed's waiting for 5% unemployment mm-hmm. to quit playing with interest rates. We may, we may, I think we'll go into a recession next year and we won't have 5% unemployment. Mm-hmm. And so what are the things I look at? I look at, you know, like the architect's billing index, it's collapsing. I look at the pods indicator, where are people moving? I look at uh, Mayor Shipping has a destocking index and they look at what's happening to all those shipping containers that they move around the world for Walmart and everybody else. What's happening? Are they staying in the warehouse or are they getting emptied out and going to the stores? They're staying in the warehouse. So when we hear about consumer spending is up 5%, no, it's not. Inflation, we're paying more for the same stuff. We're not buying more stuff. We're seeing in the retailers that just released earnings last week, Home Depot, smaller tickets, no big ticket items, uh, same store sales down. Every metric is saying it's it's not good. People are pulling their horns back in. Mm -hmm. And then others like Walmart and Target, they're saying we're seeing an uptick in layaway plans. So I can't afford to buy it. I'll put it on layaway. Maybe over the next four to eight weeks, I can pay for the item. That shows you the stress in the consumer. So I think 2024 is going to be the year that we've been talking about as a recession. It hits and we have a lot of big headwinds. We have the elections. Who the heck knows what happens on on that side and Mm -hmm. and who we have. Biden just turned 81 um, in and he, he couldn't count the 81 candles on the cake. You know, he's still still working on it or whatever. He wanted an ice cream cone instead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Trump, I mean, can you just imagine we end up having a square out between Biden and Trump for next mm-hmm. year with all the headwinds. You look at the global geopolitical issues. This stuff in the Middle East is a powder keg. And um, it could be very punitive. Uh, our ally is Israel and we should stand up and, you know, I think fight you know, against Hamas and any terrorist entity, because if you don't root it out, it's just like a yellow jacket. Those of you who don't live in the South don't know about yellow jackets, but you can't just kill or, or tick off one. There's like 4,000 more that come out of the ground and right. attack you. So we've got all this geopolitical list. We have elections next year. 
we have the most dysfunctional Fed that we've ever had that doesn't know what's going on. It's jump rope monetary policy. So I think we all need to hunker down. It's going to be a year of volatility. I'll give you one metric that was what I used to watch that I've thrown in the trash can. It's called the VIX, the Chicago Board of Equity VIX, the volatility index. So normally when it would hit 30 or more, that's a sign the market was in under a lot of risk and volatility. So it's at 14. This is like Ronald Reagan era VIX. Mm. With all that we have going, what the heck has happened to the VIX? It hadn't been above you know, 15 to 18 in months. And when you think of all the things that we've gone through, even with Silicon Valley, it didn't even breach 20. Mm. So that's why thinking about what are the metrics that I need to look forward to. And I think you know, looking at the things like what's happened with CRE delinquency, what's happening with bank lending, what are the terms? You know, who do I go to for my capital? Mm -hmm. So we may see like during COVID, we had um, a lot of the resort hotel owners go to sell leaseback options and just pay off their bank debt and keep their assets. So they went to private equity. So I got a great resort here in Vail or Beaver Creek or you know the Breakers or whatever down in Florida. So uh, I'll sell you the asset. You give me enough money to pay off my creditors. I'll pay you a good return, you know, 12, 14, 15%, but I want the right to buy the, the asset back in three to five years. And they outperformed, they bought their assets back, they got rid of the lender and they went forward. I think we may see a lot more sale leaseback type structure. So brokers, if you don't understand that, start thinking and tuning up on that. So we're, we're gonna have to rethink uh, all our skills. So I'll tell you how I close my day each day, because I get very depressed reading all this stuff. <laughs> um, so the first thing I do is I look for TV land or me TV to find an episode of Andy Griffin <laughs> and know that we could live in an era again where the sheriff doesn't wear a gun and the deputy only has one bullet and it's his shirt pocket. Things could be good again. Mm -hmm. Then after a half hour of Andy Griffin and feeling a little bit better, I catch up on my reading with a uh, periodical called Connect CRE. Mm -hmm. So for those that don't know it, all they do is cover transactions that are getting done mm -hmm. and they go in. There's office building deals that are getting done. There's retail deals that are getting done. Top Golf just sold some assets. A major uh, Cane's Chicken just did a major debt restructure. And you wouldn't think these things can be getting done today. And they talk about how they get them done. Who's the lenders? What's the structure? You know, I needed uh, an you know a credit enhancement in the deal to get it over the goal. We're going to have to rethink and retool ourselves in how transactions get done because it was just too damn easy the last few years. And now it's that's now you're going to separate kind of you know, the, the experience from the non-experience. So use this as an opportunity to tune up on your experience, network more, go to industry or conference events in your local market. I'll guarantee you that the problem you have, there's somebody there that's already worked through it and can be a, a good guidance. So this is a time to tune up. It's not going to be easy next year. Yeah, well, good advice. Okay, seeing good information. Thank you for joining us, thank sir. Thank you. All right, appreciate it. All right, and thank you for joining us around the country. Please let us know what you think. Hey, we appreciate you sharing the show, and we'd love to connect with you on your favorite social media. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bullet Realty. For commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the Southeast U.S., contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. And by Lument. For senior housing, healthcare, and multifamily financing, visit lument.com. Com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.